Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to speak up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, the Christian New Year begins this day. On the first Sunday of Advent, the word meaning arrival or expectation, entrance of God in Christ, and we gather to consider and to contemplate the numerous ways that God enters into our existence. And one of the ways that God comes among us is this afternoon and this evening in the Narthex. Uh, bring a friend tonight. Uh, Jeff has already extended the invitation, James and Allison as well. We hope you'll be with us tonight. There are three occasions as were mentioned for us to join together and come early and bring a neighbor and it will be the beginning of this season in such a meaningful way. It's one of the most meaningful experiences uh, of the year for us and we look forward uh, to that tonight. Thanks to the acolytes and to our musicians who have led us so effectively as we have lit the first candle, the candle of hope, and the banner of hope is before us. We're beginning uh, today with the prophets. The cradle of hope is not first of all found in a manger, but is found in the prophets of the Old Testament. And so this is one of the few times uh, in the year that we're going to be following the lectionary, and for the next four Sundays on cycle C, the third year of our lectionary, we'll be looking at the prophetic text that prophesy the coming of God in Christ. We have read this morning from the prophet Jeremiah. History refers to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. Jewish tradition says that this man of God wrote no less than four books in the Hebrew canon, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and perhaps also First and Second Kings. Jeremiah lived through the most tumultuous time, the most painful period in the history of Israel. He lived and served during the exile, which I think was a time in which the chosen felt rather unchosen. They lost their homes. They lost their promised land. They lost their worship place, their temple. They lost their dignity in many ways. They lost their government, their monarchy, and many of them lost their faith, at least temporarily. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, saw it coming before it happened, and he predicted it, and it happened just as he forecast. You know the story of Jeremiah, called to preach in his youth, he responded as any teenager would to such a call. He ran for his life. He resisted. He's in good company, Moses, all the way to Simon Peter. It's the common response to the call of God is to run, to object, to resist. I don't know how to speak, 
He answered, God, for I'm but a boy. But God, being God, would not take no for an answer. You'll go where I send you, said the Lord, and you'll speak whatever I command you. And you need never be afraid, for I will be with you. I will deliver you. And then, says Jeremiah 1, God touched his mouth and said, Now I have put my word on your lips. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Is it any wonder that he ran? It is a daunting task when God touches your lips and calls you to be a prophet. I I don't think the building and planting is so difficult. It's the plucking up and pulling down that's not so easy. To be called to destroy and overthrow. Such is the job description of a prophet. It's no wonder he ran. I think it was St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the 12th century Benedictine monk, who said, if you are to do the work of a prophet, what you need is not a scepter, what you need is a hoe. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever discovered it, those of you who have a green thumb, and I'm not one of them, but have you ever discovered that briars and pricklies have a pretty strong root system, and so they don't come up without a fight? My preaching professor when I was at school in Emory, Dr. Fred Craddock, used to say, When the vine dresser prunes the field, the vine doesn't know if it's being cut back or cut out. In either case, the blade feels the same. It's painful. And such is the work of a prophet. Such is the work of one whose lips have been touched by God. Sometimes the words are not simply comforting. Sometimes the words afflict the comfortable. He was a PK, preacher's kid, or as we call them, T.O., a theological offspring. His father, whose name was Hilkiah, was a descendant of Abiathar. He was the high priest during King David's rule, if you can believe it. And so for Jeremiah, ministry was in his blood. It was in his DNA. He grew up in a parsonage. And he knew just enough about ministry to know that he didn't want to do it. It wasn't for him because he knew he had seen prophets come and go. Prophets are known to disturb the peace. Prophets are called to expose the tension in the nation and in the world. Prophets are renowned for naming the elephant in the room. They speak loudly and boldly about archaic subjects like sin and repentance, like holiness and righteousness and justice. The prophets remind us that God is not simply a God of mercy, but God is a God of judgment. And I've noticed that in the clergy sometimes when we attempt to domesticate God, when we attempt to tame God, there are severe repercussions 
This is, by the way, the definition of the word wrath. We don't use that word very often. Wrath is the notion that God allows us to suffer the consequences of our sin. Otherwise, how on earth would we ever learn? It's called discipline. Children whose parents continually rescue them from the consequences of their own wrongdoing never mature, never grow up. Richard Rohr, in his classic book, Falling Upward, said the bottom line of the gospel is that most of us have to hit some kind of bottom before we ever start the spiritual journey. Or as one of my favorite retired ministers used to say, it's true, the truth will set you free, but before it makes you free, it might just make you miserable. Prophets are truth-tellers who know that before you can build and plant, you might have to yank and uproot. Jeremiah knew the task of a prophet, and he didn't want it. There are many scholars who say that Jeremiah was one who was very sensitive in his upbringing. He was very introspective and perhaps an introvert. In fact, there are many who say he was basically kind of shy and reserved. He didn't want it, and yet prophets are not really volunteers, are they? (laughs) Prophets are appointed. They are called of God. I was reading the other day the writing of B. Davy Napier. Some of you remember Dr. Napier who taught at Stanford and Yale and did some of our Disciple One videos. He finds a connection with Jeremiah, the reluctant prophet, in these words. Listen to this paraphrase. We are Jeremiah. More than most, we are gregarious, and more than most, we know the longing to be heard, accepted, loved, intensely people, people. We would like to speak the smooth, the sparkling, pleasing word, the soothing word, the word of confidence, the undisturbing word, the word of praise for sacred things like life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and truth, of course, America the beautiful, in God we trust, and in the Pentagon, Apollo, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars, and Jesus saves the democratic way of life, and every day in every way grow old along with me because the best is surely yet to be in this fair land possessed by people brave and free." Like everyone, we want success as measured by the instruments devised by those who have achieved success. We want to find our way into the councils of the mighty. We want the royal things, the royal way, the royal places of security. I, Jeremiah, want the royal way, but there's a burning in my bones, and there's a fire in my heart. And hate is loose to tear apart the work one loves, the love one owns. I, Jeremiah, want the royal way, but every time I draw my breath to speak, I shout destruction, death, and I am taken with dismay. I could be silent like the stones or learn to play a quieter part, but there's a fire in my heart and there's a burning in my bones. Such is the life of a prophet. 
There was a brief reform in Judah during King Josiah's reign. Do you remember King Josiah who became king at age eight, who brought reform, spiritual renewal? In fact, 2 Kings 22 verse 2 says, and I quote, Josiah walked in all the ways of his father David, turning neither to the left nor to the right. But after Josiah's untimely death in 609 B.C., the nation went south under other rulers, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, namely, who did what was evil in the sight of God. Kings only got one line on their epitaph. They either did what was right or did what was evil in the sight of God. And these two kings doing evil, and Jeremiah was called to do some pruning, (laughs) which promptly landed him in jail but he could not keep silent. In the face of idolatry, in the face of corruption, in the face of compromise, greed, injustice, incivility, he could not keep silent. It's interesting that Jeremiah wasn't just a preacher, he was sort of an actor because he not only spoke truth, he acted truth. In Jeremiah chapter 27, he came into Jerusalem wearing a yoke an ox yoke on his neck, foretelling the coming of exile and captivity. He called the people, if you can imagine this, he called the people to submit to the enemy Babylonians rather than to rebel. And as you can see in the depiction, there was a rival prophet, Hananiah was his name, who was known to speak the pleasing word, the popular word, and he confronted Jeremiah tore off the yoke, broke it in two, and said to the people, this will never happen to us. But it did. And by the way, if you know your Bible, don't flip through the Old Testament and try to find the book of Hananiah. It isn't there. Because nothing he said ever came true. You ever known a pastor like that? Don't answer. But everything Jeremiah said, even the unpleasing word, came true. You don't really ever know that a prophet is a prophet until about 100 years after they're gone. And then we say, oh, he must have been right, and I was wrong, and we have a little service of repentance and go on our merry way. In chapters 30 through 33 of Jeremiah, the tone changes, the pastoral tone changes from destruction to hope, from pruning to planting. In fact, these four chapters, Jeremiah 30 through 33, you know what they call them? They call them the book of consolation, the book of comfort. There were two images here in this section that inspire hope. I want to share them briefly. The first image is a piece of real estate. In Jeremiah 27, as the Babylonians are building siege ramps to destroy the holy city, Jerusalem, Jeremiah buys a piece of real estate. Now, never mind the fact that he's under house arrest for treason, his cousin Hannibal makes him a deal on some property, and I have to ask the question, why on earth would anyone buy property in a war zone? If you think for one moment that Nebuchadnezzar is going to honor that piece of paper, 
I've got a bridge to sell you. He will not honor the contract. In fact, it won't be worth the papyrus that it's written on. But Jeremiah buys it and pays top shekel for it. What's he doing? He's sending a message to hopeless people that even when the enemy is at the gate, God is there. There is hope. When the worst thing in the world that can happen to you happens, God is still on the throne. And Jeremiah says the day is coming when houses and fields will again be purchased in this land. The other image of hope is in the text, Angela, that you read for us this morning. It's Jeremiah 33. It's an interesting image. It is the image of a fallen tree. It's the image of an old stump. Now, that's a metaphor for something. It's a metaphor for the fact that in the exile, the real tragedy of the exile is that it ended David's dynasty. For 400 years, four centuries, David's descendants ruled Judah, and God promised that it would always be so. But now the Babylonian armies have destroyed David's city, they've burned Solomon's temple, and they have deported David's heirs to Babylon. In other, in other words, the family tree is history. It's over. And yet, in the midst of this devastating loss, Jeremiah, who is himself imprisoned without wife or offspring, speaks words of comfort and hope. And this is what he says. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and Judah, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Notice I have underscored that word branch. It's a very important word. In the Hebrew language in which the passage was written, the word for branch is netzer. You see that? N-E-T-Z-E-R, netzer. Centuries later, in the hills of Galilee, northern Israel, there will arise a tiny village where a remnant of David's descendants will camp. And the name of that town is Nazareth. You pronounce it Nazareth. It means stem. It means branch. From a dead stump, from a family tree that is hopeless, the hope of the world will bloom. A son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, will emerge from a branch town and his kingdom will know no end. What Jeremiah is saying is when your future seems lost, when tomorrow seems uncertain, when you hit a dead end, when your promise becomes unpromising, you have a future, but it's not a future orchestrated by political rulers, kings, and armies. 
It's a future rooted in the promise of God, which we call gospel. Let me give you one window, one illustration, and then we're going to come to the table. Six years ago, last month, Hurricane Sandy blew through the Northeast, Superstorm, it was called, with devastating consequences. There were 285 lives that were lost, $70 billion in damages. One of the hardest hit areas by the Superstorm was in New York, specifically in Staten Island. Water, winds, falling trees just absolutely wrecked the community. One of the homes that was hit belonged to a man named Joseph Ingenito. That's Italian, if you're guessing. Joseph Ingenito in New Dorp Beach, Staten Island. He had a 30-foot blue spruce that fell on his home. He'd been hoping that that tree would be the next Rockefeller Center Christmas tree so that all the world could see what he had enjoyed for years. But it didn't happen. So you know what he did? As they were breaking down that old tree that had fallen, this guy named Joseph, oddly enough, saved the top portion of the tree, the top seven feet of the tree, and planted it in his front yard as a kind of pre-Christmas Christmas tree. In fact, it became a symbol of hope to the whole community. He dug out of the mud caused by the flood some of the surviving ornaments from his basement and placed them on the tree, and soon his neighbors came adding their own ornaments, things like surgical masks and empty paper coffee cups and safety goggles, symbols of the storm and all kinds of debris. And after a while, the people realized that Joseph's dream actually was fulfilled. The whole world saw that tree, but not at Rockefeller Center. They saw it at ground zero of a superstorm, an exile. And the branches that remained became a symbol to the neighbors and to the nation that you can't stop hope. You can't thwart Christmas. You can't defeat hope. Now, I don't know if you felt it this morning, but I tell you, I felt it when I entered into this room in the branches of a Christmas tree, in the garland all about the church, in the candle lit by the acolytes, in the prophetic word, in the music. In fact, you may even taste hope this morning at this table in bread and wine. The hope of the world is in a God who in spite of all appearances to the contrary, always keeps his promises. And sometimes even enables dead wood to spring to life. May it be so on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.